Hey there, everybody. Matt here. Hey, listen, are you Pottern family? Do you not know what I mean? Well, on Twitter, there is a hashtag where you can find a bevy of great podcasts that all just kind of help to promote each other. And I am part of that group. And I would love it if you would take the time, if you're on Twitter, to just search the hashtag Pottern Family or look up at Pottern Family on Twitter and check out the bevy of great podcasts that are promoted there. Again, that's hashtag Pottern Family or at Pottern Family on Twitter. You really do get pulled into feeling for them and as, as humans and the, uh, <coughs> the uh, bronchitis strikes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but the... But the um, Spoiler alert, this podcast will be discussing a novella from George R. R. Martin from the Duncan Egg book series. If you have not read The Sworn Sword by George R. R. Martin, this might not be the podcast for you. And we will be discussing about things in the context of all of George R. R. Martin's books. So please get read up and then come back and listen. We'll be here waiting. Just thought I'd warn you, and I hope you enjoy Dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. And welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It's episode 285 of the podcast. This week is a BR podcast. It's the first one in a while. We've had a, a string of podcasts where I've been looking at the TV characters of the t- television series Game of Thrones strictly from that avenue rather than from a book avenue uh, because I'm trying to satisfy both television audiences and book audiences as we go forward and I'm trying to mix it up so that everybody stays satisfied don't have to wait too long one way or the other uh, for one kind of podcast or another and we are this time looking at The Sworn Sword which is a Duncan Egg novella uh, compiled in the beautiful book A Night of the Seven Kingdoms uh, but originally released in several different kinds of anthologies uh, when they first came out uh, all of these Duncan Egg novellas were so we're going to explore the differences in those a little bit as was brought up by one of my uh, co-hosts who will be joining us here in a second and we're also going to be looking at how it looks in the context of the larger story. My name is Matt Murdick, by the way. I'm from podcastwinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast, including our review of The Hedge Knight, which was the first Duncan Egg novella that this podcast ever covered way back in Podcast Winterfell 079. So go to podcastwinterfell.com. Look way back in the archive to 079. I was joined by Bubba and my friend Jane. Uh, we both took a... a and I think that was just the the two people who were with me. There might have been others. It might have been Susan with us. I'll have to ask her when we get her on. Um, but uh, we took a look at that novella then, and it's been all of that time since we've gotten back to this one. Um, so you can go back to Podcast Winterfell 079 and find the podcast uh, that covers The Hedge Knight, which was the first of the three Duncan Egg stories that this podcast will cover. And you can also find contact links, you can find social media links, and you can find podcast app links. And that's what's important to me right now to talk about real quickly. If you leave me a written review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcast app you use, I have a way to track that, and I will include you in a contest which there'll be a drawing on October 4th, 2016. If you write a written review by then, your name, your username on iTunes or whatever will be thrown into a hat and you have a chance to win one of two copies 
of the Game of Thrones Season 6 official soundtrack by Ramin Javadi. And I'll allow you to pick it in whatever format you wish. Maybe you want it in CD, maybe you want it in MP3 form. I will be able to deliver it to you in whichever form that you wish. I'm not actually going to purchase the prizes until I find out what format you want it in. But the only way you can win, be one of the two winners of that Season 6 official soundtrack, is by leaving a written review. If you've already left a written review in the past, you're already entered. No need to rewrite a review unless something about the podcast has changed and you want to express that in your review. Feel free to, to do that. But otherwise, you're already in the hat. I've got a big box, uh, almost, uh, I think, over 300 names in the box already. But I need, you know, another couple hundred more. So uh, if you have not left a written review, please do so by October 4th, 2016. And again, I'll draw two names from the hat. And those will be the winners of the MP3 or CD of the Season 6 official soundtrack, whatever format you choose. I do have some people to thank, and I honestly don't know if these people are TV-only people or book reader people, so you may hear these names twice uh, or once again in a future podcast that's a TV-only podcast. Uh, Nikki M. from Illinois in the U.S. iTunes Store, Christopher Holmquist in the Swedish iTunes Store, Hannah or pardon me, XHanna91 and Brown Dog in the Australian iTunes store. Thank you all very much for leaving written reviews. You are now entered into the contest as well. Man, have I talked enough about the podcast already? I think that I probably have, and it's time to start talking about this darn story that we've uh, been teasing that we were going to read practically all summer. I, I've been busy. I've been on tour. I've been doing pre-recorded podcasts of one about a, a three-part uh, theory regarding A Song of Ice and Fire, and then we've started our TV reviews of Aria and Bran. And if you have any feedback regarding any of those podcasts, feel free to get it to me, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com or at winterfellpod, or you can call 314-669-1840. And I will have an upcoming feedback podcast that will include any feedback that you have regarding any of those episodes. Now we can talk about The Sworn Sword by George R. Martin. It was a Duncan Egg novella. I think uh, we discussed earlier that off air that it was pre first introduced in the Legends 2 anthology. If I'm not mistaken, somebody can, one of my guests can correct me on that. And speaking of which, I have the three Red Widows with me tonight. They're going to sew me up in a bag and tell me exactly what they think of my opinions about this story, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but we're going to start with someone who hasn't been with us for a little while, and we're happy to have her back. Kelly, uh, my Grand Northern Conspiracy Girl, is back in the fold. And Welcome back, Kelly. Oh, thank you, Matt. Yeah, I've been in school and it's been super busy, but you caught me in a break. So I've got some time and I, of course, dedicated dedicated my chunk of time that I have for you to reading a book that I've already read <laughs> so, so I could talk about it. <laughs> How many spreadsheets did you prepare for this podcast? Oh, just one Google Doc, guys. Come on, let's get real. It's not a very long story. <laughs> oh, I'm so disappointed. So disappointed. It is an eight page Google Doc, I'll be honest. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> right on. Well, see, there there we go. Kelly never disappoints, actually. You can say you're disappointed, but then she turns <laughs> it right back around on you, sews you up in a sack, and throws you in a moat. And here we go. We're going to introduce our next uh, guest who has been with us consistently throughout the last year on Game of Thrones reads and such. We welcome back Stephanie. How are you? I'm great, Matt. Happy to be back. Happy to have you back. Uh, talked to you a couple of times over the course of the summer about different things. Uh, yes. Any of your uh, 
let's just talk TV for a second. Has has any of your uh, perceptions about some of the television show stuff changed or differed uh, from the last time we talked? Um, no, not really. I, I like the way the season played out. I'm still Team Sansa all the way, so I don't think that's ever going to change. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And uh, finally, we have, uh, of course, our resident scholar, uh, more or less, who always comes up with great information about all of these books and is constantly um, sending me uh, different kind of resource material to go to, other podcasts, uh, articles to read and such. uh, And it's just a pleasure to have on. We welcome back. Susan, how are you? Uh, Thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be back and especially with the subject because I love Dunkin' Eggs. So it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about it. Very good. And before we get started, Susan, I'm just going to turn to you. You brought up something before we started recording that I hadn't really considered because I do have uh, a copy of the, uh, the, or I guess it was the original story that was placed in the Legends 2 anthology. Um, but as you pointed out, there has also been a graphic novel adaptation. And, of course, we have the adaptation that has been placed in A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, which is the compilation of all of those stories. And you noted that there might be some differences in, in some of those adaptations. Could you uh, explain that further for our listening audience? Uh, sure. Well, as you said, the first... Uh one that came out was in a collection of stories where uh, George has often entered something with a lot of other uh, fantasy or sci-fi stories. He'll put a short story in there. So uh, this first came out in the legends too. And while I haven't seen a hard copy of that, I first was introduced to the story by listening to that version of it in audio format. And it starts out with a really nice little overview of kind of the history of Westeros, which is not something you get in the newest one that just came out. Uh-huh. So I think that's, you know, one little difference that's kind of nice to point out. And then um, as far as the uh, graphic novel that came out, I think that it is really well done. Now, they did one for the Hedge Knight and they did one for the Sworn Sword. But uh, as far as I know, they never came out with one for the Mystery Night. But if you can get your hands on these and you can get it in a, uh, you can get it through Kindle as well as a hard copy of these graphic novels, they are beautifully illustrated, lots of color. And because this particular story goes back into the Blackfire Rebellion, you'll have uh, different illustrations of, of those fights as well as the story itself. That's really nice. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to I I have the like I said, I have a a PDF copy of the one from the anthology series. So I'm going to definitely go back and look into that one um, because that history of Westeros sounds uh, like a really nice uh, addition to the story that I know I don't quite understand why they didn't uh, include that in. Um, Kelly, let me turn to you real quick. I, I thought what we would do at the beginning uh, of this podcast is rather than wait till the end and talk about reviewing or trying to give it stars or, or talking about whatever, I just kind of wanted to find out from each of the panelists um, what they liked and disliked about the story in kind of a general sense. Um, how did you feel about it in terms of plot, in terms of information, uh, in regards to how it can supplement for the other a Song of Ice and Fire stories. 
Um, and what about the story appealed to you most or kind of put you off most? Yeah, um, I would say, oh, first I had a note. I wanted to let you know that you had, I just listened to your podcast uh, with, that you did with the Hedge for the Hedge Night. And you had Ken, Bubba, and uh, was it Jan? Jane? Jane. Jane, yeah, that was the three that it was with you on that one. It was, it was Ken. Awesome I can't believe I, I forgot Ken. Oh, Ken, I'm sorry, bro, if you're out there listening. I was so happy to hear his voice. So, yeah, that was a nice little little uh, time machine back to, to when Ken was on all the time. So, um, But, yeah, so the for this um, read, I was really struck by the really strong female character uh, of Roanne. And that was probably my favorite part of this. Like, in the beginning, she's kind of this, like, mysterious figure, and you are – designed to dislike her or at least be suspicious of her because of all these tales that they say of her and obviously they're exaggerated so you know that there's probably not exact truth to them but it does sound like really shady business and especially you see dunk and we all trust dunk and he's really infuriated that she's blocked this dam so she's really drawn up to be this like evil neighbor really you know that there's this little little microcosm going on in westeros between these these two neighbors and it's just you really do get pulled into feeling for them and as, as humans and the, uh, the way that they, they kind of like unravel like this person that you thought you were sympathetic for and Sir Eustace, you suddenly realize that, you know, especially near the end with um, when he's actually kind of telling Dunk, you know, remember the story of the little lion and you're like, is he telling Dunk to kill her? And you, you know, he meets um, Dunk goes out into the water and meets Roanne and she's, gives him this actually really compelling explanation as to why she's doing these these kind of seemingly evil actions against Sir Eustace and you see her the position the position she is in trying to hold this keep and keep all of these people off of her back you know and and she actually has a really good justification for it and you kind of flip 180 and how you feel about each of these characters and that just her character in general, like, and especially the way she's presented, like you can't, you could replace her with a male character and you wouldn't have necessarily any, you know, of the sexual tension between her and Dunk, but you would still have all of the same behavior. And I think that was kind of a really, I really valued that. And I really appreciated George for kind of writing the strong female character that wasn't stereotypical Westeros female that we've seen um, a lot of time. Like she's holding her keep, like it's pretty, it's pretty rad of her. <laughs> Very interesting. Now, was there a part, was there something, anything about the story that put you off? I mean, that's, that obviously is a very compelling read for, for you. I found the plot to be a little bit lackluster <laughs> myself. Um, but, uh, yeah. I found the information to be very interesting. It was definitely slower. And I think like it kind of comes from the way he was writing. Like you don't get as many stories or descriptions of food in this one, but you get a lot of descriptions mm. of the weather. You get like mm. it is hot. And there's a lot of these just little descriptions explaining or describing how just this overwhelming heat and drought. And you really do feel that. And I feel like in my opinion, that kind of actually made the story seem to drag even more so. Uh-huh. <laughs> You kind of have this like summer slowness mentality going on when you're reading this and it just drags a little bit in, in that sense. Like the tempo is definitely not as, as up as the, um, the hedge night or the one that comes after. Like it just it is the slower of the three and you kind of have to have a little bit of patience with it, I think. Yeah, it's an but it's a different point. style. Yeah, yeah, it's just a different style. And he, he got to have some action in the last one. And then in this one, it got to be a little bit slower and be a little bit more character driven. And I. I think they both have their merits. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, let me turn to you, Stephanie, and ask you basically the same question. Was there uh, a part of the story that you really, really was drawn to 
or a part that really, really puts you off? Um, in general, I like I like the Dunkin' Egg Tales. Just I feel they are much more lighthearted um, overall, not mm-hmm. in specific things, but overall compared to the original five A Song of Ice and Fire books. You know, we get these zany characters, Dunk, who's kind of dumb but very honorable, and then we get Aegon, who's this precocious little kind of smart mouth kid, and you know they're an odd couple and. George R. R. Martin seems to love to have odd couples traveling around the countryside. And I think they're one of my favorite pairs. So I, I, I actually really like this story. Um, I think the mystery night is my favorite, but I enjoy this one mainly because of uh, Lady Weber, who Kelly was talking about. Um, and I just, I just like the, the interactions between Duncan Egg. I really do. Excellent. All right. Great thoughts. And Susan, I'll turn to you with the same question. I There's a number of things that I find very interesting about this particular one, but I do agree that it is slower than uh, the Hedge Knight was. Or, yeah, than, yeah, than the Hedge Knight was. Um, and that did kind of turn me off a little bit at first, but it's grown on me over time. And I think what's interesting is... Uh, and you hear Egg Dunk is teaching him about how uh, you know the, the small folks. You uh, he might look down on them because of his position, who he was, but he gives him an, an understanding of kind of trying to see things through their eyes. And I think that kind of broadens his viewpoint. So you can see how he's mentoring Egg and how their relationship is growing together. And you do get the interesting twists that Martin puts in here, where um, like uh, Kelly was saying there, that at first you think that uh, Lady Weber is this person who might be a poisoner or might have murdered her husband, because these are the this is the uh, gossip that's going around. And then when you meet her and you learn her story, of course, it's totally different. And at the same time, with Sir Eustace, you at first think that he is this nobleman that uh, Dunk is really looking up to him, and then you learn about the fact that he was actually uh, a rebel with, in the Blackfire. So it's that, that whole thing of flipping your viewpoint about these characters you know, from the beginning to the end that, that Martin is so good at that I think is interesting. And something that I'll uh, steal from uh, Sean T. Collins from the uh, Boiled Leather Hour or whatever, audio hour, that uh, they mm-hmm. have a podcast. He was talking about the fact that he thought it was interesting was how Martin seems to be using different genres with these Dunkin' Egg books, where the first one, The Hedge Knight, was kind of your typical fantasy, and that this one was actually in the style of kind of a Western. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, hmm, that's how, why, you know, some of this, you know, like you're talking about the, the environment and the way that it's written, it, it, it does kind of replicate that kind of a style. So I thought that, that gave me a little bit of insight to it, too. But lastly, I think one of the things that I, I love about these all these books, and this one does it as much as any of them, is that you just get more and more of a sense of the interconnectedness between this and the other books, and it just develops your understanding of the full history of this world. Because almost... Every character that is mentioned in here 
well, not every, but quite a few characters in, in all of these stories are related to people that we know from the other stories. And so it just kind of broadens your feeling of knowing who these people are. Excellent. Excellent points all. And why don't I just start then from that point on, I'll say that I um, was not as pulled in by the plot of this one as I was by the hedge knight. Um, however, uh, I found that a lot of the information about uh, Blood Raven was very interesting in the context of A Song of Ice and Fire in general. Um, and I also found that, uh, you know, the, the characters were definitely compelling. I did like the flip uh, of the of your perception of of what side you might really want to side with by the time you got to the end as opposed to the beginning um uh but again i i just kind of i was waiting for something huge to happen and it just seemed like nothing <laughs> huge ever happened I, I i hate to sound like our friend bubba from the joffrey podcast but you know skip ahead you know uh, <laughs> let's skip ahead to the summary the story takes place in the aftermath of the Blackfire Rebellion and opens up a year and a half after the events of the Hedge Knight. Duncan Egg are in the midst of a terrible summer drought in the Reach, which itself has followed the Great Spring sick Sickness. Dunk has sworn his sword to Sir Eustace Osgray of Stanfast, an old Dun Knight who dwells on the dual losses of his family and its ancient honors. Gnawing at the bones of fated glory, Sir Eustace draws Duncan Egg into a potentially fatal conflict with his neighbor, Lady Roanne Weber, over a precious water source. And something, guys, that I just kind of want to start off with in terms of the discussion here is uh, Kelly brought it up, and uh, I thought that the, the whole interesting thing about the environment, Susan, that you brought up about the whole Western aspect of it, is the environment. And it wasn't something that I had really considered about these stories until reading this one, um, but it seems that all we've heard lots of stories about, you know, how harsh winter can be, how long it can be, uh, old Nan's stories of snows going to a hundred feet high and everything. But I never flipped that to the height of summer and how a long summer and, and these kind of long droughts and extreme heats, um, environmentally, this world is a mess. It's, it's, it's like, you know, one extreme for long periods of time to another. And I, I, I love how that exaggeration, um, increases the tension no matter what, uh, what season you're in. For instance, it seems like, uh, as we've read in a storm of swords or whatever, that the autumn rains are just torrential causing terrible floods. Um, the springs probably not that much different than, than the autumns. And of course we had the great spring sickness mentioned in this novel, which, uh, to me is kind of likened to some type of, uh, uh, medieval plague. Um, and we have, all of these things were the seasons themselves, the environment, the uh, the world itself um, is such extremes um, that it kind of gave me a new regard for the characters themselves and just being able to survive uh, a full set of seasons in this world. It, it seems much more. And I was I guess first, Stephanie, let me turn to you. Um do you feel that impact about the summer as much as you do about the winter? And do you think that this is George's way of placing how much more of an extreme effect the environment could have on uh, a medieval society, which he kind of based 
his own world's history on like, you know, a, a, a harsh winter to people in medieval times would probably be much harder on us than uh, or on them than it would be on us in the modern day. Does that help emphasize that for you or do you have a take on it at all? I think it does, um, especially since Susan brought up how you just feel how it's hot and like it's a drought and I mean, it's pretty hot where I live right now, so I could feel it just because that's how the weather is here. Um, and I think this great spring sickness that they mentioned that happened before, I think George definitely borrowed that probably from real life. Um, during the Tudor era, there was something called the sweating sickness, which sounds very similar to that. And it just kind of brings up like the harshness of life and how things were then. And I think it also helps to emphasize that this is probably, you know, this is maybe before, but it's part of a long summer and we really haven't seen, we've se we're seeing the tail end of the long summer in our current books right now. So it's kind of interesting to see this horrible like heat contrasted with, you know, winter is coming, winter is coming, everybody's going to die. Well, a lot of people are, have died from the sickness and from the heat. So I, I think it's, it comes across well on the page. And I think George did that intentionally. Very good. Well, uh, I think just to kind of add on to that, I was thinking about the fact that here we are coming in. It says it's about a year and a half after the hedge night. And we all know the outcome of that with uh, Baylor Breakspear dying. And we then learn about how much of the Targaryen dynasty was killed because of the spring sickness. So that's really changed things. And so with Baylor dying and then the spring sickness and then this drought coming on, I think that a lot of the, um, a lot of the, especially the small folks are very concerned about their lives and what's going on. And they think that, you know, perhaps this is all related to blood Raven and the fact that he's a sorcerer and, very interesting point. Very interesting points. Kelly, I'm going to turn to you on the same question. Uh, and Susan brought up a great point about how uh, we're starting to see um, a little bit of the, the deterioration of, of the Targaryen line, which really, uh, as we know, as a song of ice and fire fans, uh, Aegon the unlikely uh, is sitting right there with dunk. And so uh, these kind of, things happening is kind of what starts to propel him towards the throne in a way, even though he's sitting on the outside, just learning stuff with dunk. Right. Yeah. This, you can kind of take a little bit of solace in whatever sadness you feel about the outcomes of some of these characters by just saying, this is many years in the past. Everyone's already dead and they've died one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to feel too bad of their fates. Um, but yeah, the, well, I mean, <laughs> You can in a way, but I think it kind of puts it into context when you think that they're all dead. It's fine. Like I got all teary eyed yeah. about Chestnut and him burying Chestnut, but then I remembered, oh, Thunder's probably also already dead now, and it's fine. <laughs> don't get, don't get too attached to anyone in these stories. This is all history, um, and also fake, but <laughs> but mostly history. <laughs> but yeah, the I think that what was interesting about the the um, environment is how it was kind of reflective of the society at the time too like it's kind of this everything is kind of a kindling it's so ready to spark a fire and how the um 
they were kind of the small folk were actually blaming this drought on Blood Raven and um, and how they're like they're punishing him for being a kinslayer and that kind of raises the tensions a little bit by making this like a physical manifestation of the feelings that are going around in in the environment as well. So it kind of ties in a little bit to that. And maybe one aggravates the other a little bit, like the the environment being so dry and kind of hazardous at this point and such a struggle for everyone. It just raises those tensions that are already there lingering because of their their feelings towards their um their leaders their rulers at this time it's tensions are high and weather does not help that you know absolutely great and i i really don't know i i don't really kind of this has never been a recap podcast (laughs) when we talk about these things so much uh i kind of gave a summary and i just kind of want to open up any topic to everybody uh or to anybody as we go along whatever you feel is most important that you glean from the story as we go um so Susan, I'm going to turn to you now, and uh, whatever point you want to bring up first, feel free to do so, and we'll throw it around. Well, uh, this is the first place where we hear about Blood Raven. I don't think he had come up in any of, I don't know if he had been mentioned in any of the um, the Song of Ice and Fire books that might have come out. I I don't have a, like, uh, timeline to know, you know, when this came out in relation to which of those books were out yet or so forth. But I, I, as far as he wasn't mentioned in The Hedge Knight, so this is the first of these books that he is mentioned in. And um, obviously he's someone that goes on to play a significant role, not only at this time, but into the story that we are all enjoying in the, you know, the larger story. So, you know, I found just to start to learn about who is this person, this mysterious person who is talked about fairly negatively in this story. Um, but I find him fascinating. So it's interesting. This is his beginning. Yeah. And uh, Dunk's talk of, of a thousand eyes and one. I love that because uh, we all relate that of course, to uh brand uh, getting to the tree in a dance, uh, a dance of dragons. And, uh, and of course that, uh, Brendan Rivers, uh, who was mentioned in Feast for Crows, uh, tells Bran, you know, I've been watching you with a thousand eyes and one. And, and, and that was one of the things, I guess, that was able to allow people to put things together very quickly in terms of, of who Bran was dealing with uh, once we got north uh, of the wall. Um, great point, Susan. Let's go on to you, Kelly. How about a point from you? Oh, just piggybacking on that, this uh, Sworn Sword came out between A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows. Um, so a Thank little you. bit right, directly in the middle, it came out in 03, yeah. So definitely, I mean, who knows when he came up with the story and had written it, but it was published between then. So it seems like some of these thoughts were already brewing in his mind. And Ooh. I know, right? <laughs> it's so cool to kind of <laughs> see. And you kind of feel a little bit like you're peeking into the world beyond the the books, the main books, by getting to read some yes. of these, it's kind of exhilarating. I don't know, maybe that's really nerdy to say, but <laughs> um, the yeah, I, I think that the Blackfire Rebellion um, description was really interesting for, and I think this is where a lot of the information for like the Battle of the Bloodgrass Field comes from, and you get <laughs> you get kind of twisted, and I and I'm torn between saying you're 
um, emotions are flipped or they're just stretched. When you're when you hear it for the first time, as Sir Eustace kind of recounts it to um, to Dunk and an egg about, or I think it's just a Dunk at that point, about what happened and how tragic it was, and what and you can't really tell from how he's saying it, but but looking back on it, you can see that he's definitely referring to Damon as this kind of heroic figure and. That who was who he was backing, not um, the uh, the Reds, I guess. And or the, so yeah, the um, and then when you read it back again and you see that he was really um, a black at the time, and you then feel sympathy for him, and you can kind of really see how someone who did support a rebellion could be an okay guy, and their reasoning was not fault, you know, fault faulty in any way except that they lost <laughs> you know right. it does kind of just stretch your capacity for feeling that empathy I think for both sides and I kind of like to look at this as a little microcosm lesson for maybe how we should look at what's happening in the five main books and soon to be seven hopefully main books of uh, Song of Ice and Fire so um, that that kind of little parallel um, really I think is what I value the most out of this read, besides the awesome female characters. Um, my my one, um, I do have a fun fact. I don't know if anyone else liked to um, caught that Rowan um, ended up marrying Sir Eustace. However, if you check her um, yes. Wiki Vice and Fire page, she's actually the um, what the uh, great grandmother of Cersei, Jamie, and Tyrion. So right. she's yes. Uh, yeah, Tywin's I, grandmother. <laughs> her and uh, Gerald Hightower, who is noted as a, a potential suitor to her oh, yes. in this her story, <laughs> uh, I guess got married. And uh, I know that uh, Tytos, who was Tywin's father, was was Gerald's son. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting um, that the world of Ice and Fire has expanded that because as far as, as the, the story itself goes, I suppose we never really got uh that did was Rowan ever mentioned in any of the books proper no no, no. And yeah. her her references page yeah none of the original books come up right so. so that so it's great that uh you know when they when they did the world of ice and fire they just said well obviously Eustace is an old man so eventually he probably died uh and was her she was a widow for a fifth time and then Gerald came along and they finally uh produced some sons and some heirs I guess <laughs> yeah and like I said once you know some of that kind of stuff it kind of makes any sort of sadness or even happiness that you felt about what happens to these characters feel a little bit pointless or moot. <laughs> You're like, oh, they end up getting married. That obviously didn't last very long. <laughs> uh, I wanted to go back real quick, Kelly, about yeah. your talk about the red grass field. Please. Because this totally caught me weird. There's a point in this this novella where Eustace says that the grass was not red until that mm -hmm. battle. Mm -hmm. Now, what I liken this to personally, and, and you can tell me if I'm completely crazy, but is that to say that this kind of of botany, uh, this kind of grass or whatever, <laughs> I, when I think of the when I think of the weirwood trees and how their leaves are red and then you think about brands going back uh, through the weirwood network in time and seeing blood sacrifices being made to the weirwood trees. And now I've always likened the red leaves to being because of the blood, you know, that, that the blood sacrifices to the trees. 
is this something similar? Is the grass acting kind of like the same way the leaves are of the weirwood trees? Oh, May, you didn't warn me enough. I didn't have time to put on my tinfoil hat. I was unprepared for this. <laughs> <laughs> I just took it as the red, the, it was called the red grass field, the same way that it was called the field of fire. Um, it caught on fire. I don't think it's still on fire now. I think it just was at the time. And so that's what they called the battle. <laughs> okay. Well, I, and the only reason I do that is because Eustace says the grass was not red before that battle. And he's talking right. like it still is. Oh, I think I took it more as the grass because um, there is such a thing as like red grass. I think Jorah tells Danny at one point that there's all kinds of grass that the Dothraki have seen and they've named some of the red grass and stuff. So I think that there's there is such a thing as red grass. And he's just clarifying saying it, this was not red grass before the battle. But what caused it to become red grass? Uh, blood. Yes. Blood. But, why, <laughs> but if if. The, the, I don't that think would it's eventually grow, but that would eventually grow out, and it would go back to whatever it was before, would it not? If it's a different, if it's a for, specific if type of like since, but I think they're saying since it's been the Battle of Redgrass Field, since all the blood, it's always ever since then it's been known yeah. as that. Oh, and that's what made them name it that. Like it wasn't known as the Redgrass Field before that. I don't think. Correct. Uh, well, yeah, it right. wasn't known as a red grass field, but Eustace specifically says the the grass was not red until the battle. I think that is very interesting and possible that there was something to do with that, but I don't, that has something to do with like blood magic happening. Like the, in this world, that is totally um, been proven that there is such a thing as blood magic and the children of the forest use it. And this is a thing of nature. So I'm not saying that you're super duper crazy, but <laughs> but you're saying I'm a little crazy, and that's well, fine. Let's I'm just move saying, on I'm, just, I'm just I'm, sewing up my, my sack here or my bag that I'm about to uh, throw over your head. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. I'm about to go in the moat here. Let's go, <laughs> Stephanie, let's go to you for a point. Oh, for a point. Um, well, I want to talk about uh, Egg's boot. Because, you know, throughout this story, he keeps saying the dunk well we can always just get my boot we can get my boot and you know if you haven't read it before you're like what is he talking about like why does like he's a kid like why does he keep talking about his boot like what a weirdo and then um when they finally do use the boot it has like his targaryen seal in it which proves who he is he's a prince he's a targaryen prince um i just i thought that was a really great moment and i was thinking what did you guys think about when he was mentioning his boot the whole time. Did you guys have any idea what he meant? Could I just jump in? Cause I, Are you the, laughing at me, Kelly? I'm a little bit, but no, but no, not because of that. Only because I'm so glad that you brought that up. Cause I, like, there's oh. like two, two or three things that like, I just keep coming back to. I, I was so glad we read this one. Cause the, his boot is just something that I always say now, like, cause I wear boots and I keep <laughs> things, I keep things in them. <laughs> really? I see. Yeah, because I, I don't have pockets some, on something, so I just keep things in my boot, and it's literally like, oh, is it in my boot? I have to check my boot. And since my boyfriend <laughs> read this book with me, he says it all the time too. So <laughs> this is like a major part of my life. <laughs> this is real. <laughs> but to answer your question, I totally just had like this little suspicion that it was something that would give them an edge, but I had no idea if it was. Right. Like, a ring or anything like we these days we wear boots that fit we wear shoes that you don't have a space for a giant <laughs> ring <laughs> so right. that did not occur to me 
Like, is there like an emblem in your boot? I don't understand. <laughs> How about you, Susan? Did you uh, suspect the, the boot uh, on your first read? You know, I can't remember. <laughs> I was listening to this so many times that I don't remember how I thought about it originally. Understood. Understood. It's, uh, I, I'll have to say that, you know, it, it, I, I had a feeling that it had something to do with his, you know, identity um, because it seemed like every time it came up, right. know, Dunk was so adamant about, you know, him not doing it. But I, I thought that maybe it was something, you know, the boot itself was was the symbol of who yes. he was. You know, I didn't think <laughs> yeah, that there was right. something in the boot. So that, that was <laughs> that was the way I took it. Um, Susan, let's go to you for a point. Okay. Um, well, uh, about the spring sickness, one thing I thought was interesting was that they talked about the fact that it did not go to Dorn and did not go to the Vale because both of those areas of the kingdom sealed themselves off. They kind of like put a boycott, they sealed off their roads and didn't allow people to come in. Um, yeah. And the thing that I was just thinking about that was I wonder if there will be anything that might happen in the future, if we end up having like a grayscale plague or something like that, yeah, you know, that has been kind of proposed that, you know, something like that might happen amongst all the different tragedies that we're going to be looking at here towards the end of, uh, you know, the conclusion of the main series, that if there will be any areas of the country that will take that tactic and be able to survive or avoid contamination because of that. This might foreshadow. Ah, it, it, it might. That's good. Yeah, it might very, very well might be. Um, <laughs> I, I, the isolationist kind of attitude, um, is is a trait that has happened with the veil, right? Since this story, um, because Lysa Aaron basically cut herself off from the rest of the world, her and Littlefinger off mm-hmm. from the rest of the world. Um, right. Uh, and Dorn has always kind of been on the outside anyway. Um, so exactly. I, I think there, there are some very definite characteristic, uh, similarities, uh, throughout history. And that's one of the things that I love about George's stories is that he does show that history tends to repeat itself, not necessarily in the same way, but maybe even just kind of characteristically the same. Um, and I, I love that aspect of it. So I love that thought. Um, Oh, on the speaking of the veil, I just wanted to re- remind, I don't know, point out that the the um the veil did was led by the Lord of the Veil did leave the lead the vanguard on the Battle of the Red, Gla- Red Grass Field. And that was kind of an interesting thing that cuz this is the second time, I don't know, I don't think you've read the um the Dance of the Dragons, the the Reds and the Greens or the Blacks and the Greens. What was that one called? <laughs> yeah, the short story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that one is another time when you see the um the Vale of Aaron take the side of the loyalists of the Targaryens. Um and I just wonder if that has future implications uh, for the um the uh what we see happening in the uh like winds of winter coming out next with uh Aegon, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think historically, one reason for that is because the Vale uh, and the, the Aaron family was one of the families that uh, married and to, with the Targaryen family earliest and had some of the greatest alliances with them. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. helps. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it's just like another example where we see them being supporting the the Targaryens and just I just kind of like little nuggets like that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's just my speaking of the veil moment. Very good. Uh, Kelly, let's go to you with a point. Oh, um, a quick one then. I have one. The um, the repetitiveness that we just... I know we all love, and nobody is ever annoyed that George does this <laughs> as his characters. <laughs> just repeat the same thoughts. Uh, and I don't know if this is realistic. If you if it this is how you think sometimes, like that's great, and you can see yourself in these characters, but this is definitely strange to me. Um, but you get again, uh, Dunk thinking Tansel too tall was her name, but she was not too tall for me, which I just thought was normal. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then the one that he comes up with for. Um, uh, Lady Weber is that she I bet she's freckled all over <laughs> and he thinks that a couple <laughs> times and you're you're kind of gratified with it by the end because then you kind of hear that she must have been thinking the same thing of Dunk because she says I bet you're big all over <laughs> and that only read yeah. to me like she's been thinking the same thing the same number of times about him <laughs> every time he thinks I bet she's freckled all over she's been thinking I bet he's big all over <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, they are, they are a little bit. Of, yeah, it was just a little bit of payoff for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, Stephanie, as you brought up, these books are a, a little more lighthearted. There, there's always some some good humor in in the uh, in the Dunkin' Egg books uh, to me. Uh, yes. And I, I love that myself. But how about a uh, point from you? Well, I was just going to kind of piggyback on what Kelly said about the repeating um, aspect. Um, I'm not sure if they, because I've read them all like in succession, but, um, you know, they repeat dunk the lunk, dunk the lunk, thick as a castle wall. They keep saying that he keeps saying that over and over and people call him dunk the lunk. So that's just another like funny repeating thing that George likes to do just you know because Dunk's not very smart he's thick as a castle wall and he's big and you know it's just kind of it's fun I think yes but speaking of the repeating stuff and back to Kelly's Tanzel too tall was anybody in this panel as heartbroken as I was that he never found her oh yeah yeah but it was realistic I think like he did mention that he had been they had chased down half a hundred puppet shows and that kind of shows that they <laughs> they put in some effort and they got some adventure out of it, but maybe it just wasn't meant to be. Oh, <sighs> poor, poor Donk. It's never meant to be until you find out, Aww. until we at least find out someday uh, who he was with at, uh, at uh, uh, Tarth, right? Uh, right. It works out yeah. with someone someday, yeah. And I think, in, yeah, you, I mean, the thing is with some of these books, like, you can go on or you can read a world of ice and fire and you know what happens to them. Like <laughs> I know. That's why I try not to read a world of ice and fire too much right now until I get oh, through these. How can you restrain yourself? Yeah. Ad- admiration, sir. Well, I, I try to restrain myself. Some stuff for theory casting. I have to, I have to do the research, but, uh, Oh, it just opens so many more doors. Fortunate, <laughs> fortunately, fortunately th- he does lay enough clues in his main text, like the, the shield and stuff for Brienne that that was pretty oh, yes. easy, but, um, in feast, I guess that was, but yeah. Um, let's see who have I got to go to here. Uh, back to you, Susan, who you got? Yes. Well, just a, a real quick point I want to add on about, uh, Rowena and then talking about Tansel is that perhaps the fact that we know that she is going to in the future, 
um, be widowed and marry again. And we know that we're going to see quite a few more Duncan Egg stories. Maybe she'll pop up again in one of these because, you know, perhaps they will have some involvement with the Lannisters at some point. So that was one thing I was thought might be a possibility. But the main point I wanted to bring up now was this issue with Sir Eustace about you know, taking the black, you know, that he rose for the black dragon and, and uh, when he was explaining this to Dunk uh, and Egg, that uh, I, I really liked the way that George wrote this about the fact that, uh, you know, traitors are just, you know, the losing side and that if they'd won, they'd done the heroes. And I can agree with that sentimentality and understand it, but I also think that if you, you know, look at the whole Blackfire Rebellion issue, that you do have a bastard line that was raising up, and the majority of the people that rose up with him uh, were people who were either anti-Dornish, they didn't like the fact that Darren had such a, that he had married a Dornish person and had such a, a uh, large contingency of Dornish uh, influencing the capital, um, the fact that uh, Damon was the uh, warrior knight and that was uh, the type of person that so many of them put on a pedestal and looked to. And that a lot of these uh, were families that were, even though Sir Eustace says he didn't want to get the cold moat castle, that a lot of these people were from families that did think that they would benefit from greater lands or other assets if they were with Damon. You know, they weren't the families that were, you know, they were like, you know, the second sons and things like that that had something to gain from it. So, you know, I still feel that the rightful side was the, you know, the Reds and that uh, the other ones were rebels. Well, it sounds like the, like what the blacks were trying to do was kind of form some a bit of a democracy. Like they had different values than their leader that they had to that they owed fealty to and this is just a, like a bizarre concept in this world that I don't agree with the values of the person who is above me therefore I'm going to make a change and in our world we're like yeah you vote somebody new in next year you know but for them like right. this is their version of that <laughs> so we can kind of sympathize in that way however yeah like I definitely don't sympathize once you get down a little bit deeper with what they were basing those values off of, which was, oh, he had women talking in his ear and he surrounds himself with these dark skinned people. And it's like, whoa, there. <laughs> That's the kind of talk that, you know, you don't want to put weapons in the hands of them and give them power like that's really bad but they were also people who just benefited from war as well they benefited from having things to fight over and winning when the winning was done and having gains from that so there was a lot of less savory aspects i think than how it was perceived through the like memories of this aging knight but it does kind of sound a little bit more glorious and a little bit more honorable when he's remembering it. So I, I understand the sympathy and also the, the conflict within that. Yeah. I got a couple of points here that I, I, I just, they're just kind of trivial little things, but um, when the, the Osgrave heritage, you know, about the whole cold moat being theirs and everything being up until the field of fire. And, and I, I love this, just a slight mention, which of course the, um, 
the television show with their with their Blu-rays and such have really expanded upon. Uh, they had a thing I think in the season five Blu-rays uh, that I managed to catch on YouTube that uh, explained the story of how the Terrells came to power. And there's just one little mention here in this of uh, how uh, the passing of Highgarden from Kings to Stewarts. Um, that little line in there actually just kind of got me. It's like, whoa, I forgot how in-depth with these books you have to be to catch little things like that when sometimes the television show, say with, um, well, like the confirmation of R plus L equals J and what have you, uh, can be so overt and how clever George is in just tucking little things in like that. Yeah, what what were you referring to in the Greens roast? Oh, you you were saying when um they used to own the land of the Reach, and then they just he mentioned that they just it went the what was it? The, yeah, that he lost a lot of his lands after the Field of Fire. Um, yeah, and, 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 and was, actually, Lady Weber says later um, things change, and she has a, a whole. Uh, High Garden is still High Garden, though the last gardener died on the field of fire. Casterly Rock teams with Lannisters, and nowhere are Casterly to be found. These, yeah, that was I wrote that down because I thought that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, and and even uh, Osgrave just when he's talking to Dunk and he talks about how High Garden passed from kings to Stuarts, that exactly, l- that yeah. little line right there uh, really uh, tipped me off to you know how the Tyrells came to power, which is again explained very well in that in that. Uh, extra histories and lore thing in the in I the, know. Uh, We're so spoiled. Yeah. It just gets like spelled out <laughs> for us. <laughs> but like, you know, you think even just like what was it? The last book came out in two thousand eleven and that was when the first season was. Like that's all people had at the time and they was they were putting all this together. Like we just have it put it on the extras, put it on replay, I'll listen to it in the background and pick up on it. <laughs> 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 right? Like this is it's but I think we kind of got the benefit there because hearing Natalie Dorman's voice reading that is pretty glorious. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I can't disagree with that. Um, we haven't, you know, we've all praised about the, the, the strength of this female character, but other than praising the strength of her, we haven't talked about her uh, a whole lot other than maybe her uh, propensity towards a larger man. Um, <laughs> how about we uh, discuss her a little bit? Uh, what about Lady Roanne Weber stuck out to you, Susan? Well, I think when they met for the, for the, um, at the river and she came out in the water to meet Dunk and when he brought the ring out and they had the discussion about, you know, when he brought up, this was just a, a pissing contest type of thing that uh, amused her. And then she went on to say how, because of the fact that she was female and a small female at that, she had to be even stronger than the men because they would very easily take advantage of her or think they could take advantage of her if she showed any sign of weakness at all. So I thought, you know, that that really showed just how difficult things were for her and how much extra effort she had to put into, you know, keeping her position. Yes, and it made me hate all of the people around her that much more, for sure. Um, you know, uh, that that was that was a, a, a key point for me as well. How about you, Stephanie? Uh, what were your impressions of of Lady Weber? Um, I I really enjoyed her, um, and I especially liked um, when Egg you know comes in 
and says like, well, she poisoned three of her husbands and she's a, you know, kind of a witch. He, he doesn't say witch, but he says, you know, she practices the dark arts and, and then he, um, starts telling Dunk about, uh, Kira Seastar, um, you know, Brendan or Blood Raven's, uh, paramour and how she, she's a witch and she bathes in blood. And he, he just, Egg seems just to kind of believe that like these women do these dark arts and, you know, it's kind of, he's a child, but it's also kind of believable because, you know, she's had what four husbands die already and she's still pretty young. I just, I like that. As- I, I like any of the magic aspect, even if it is the blood magic and the dark stuff. I thought that was interesting that Egg brought it up because we don't really have the magical elements. Um, of, co- of course, that we do. You hear that her first, the first time she was married, she was 10, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's true, but still. <laughs> I like to look at it kind of the other way, actually. And I, I like that you brought up that she said that Egg drew the comparison between um, Lady Shiera and uh, and Lady Weber because that because ki- once you actually see Lady Weber and you realize that all of these things that were told about her or that were s- spoken of her were really kind of exaggerated or had right. no basis, that kind of makes me think, well, maybe we should rethink what has been said of Lady Shiera. <laughs> right, like maybe and you also someone- have to think like Egg's a little kid and who's he here? You know, he's here he's obviously hearing it from somewhere. He doesn't see any of this happen, but it's just interesting that that's what his point is. He's like, well, she probably poisoned him. She's probably doing the dark arts. So, you know, I just, I think he's too smart for his own good. And I think they say that sometimes about him. (laughs) He's like a little sponge. Like he just absorbs and reads back all of this knowledge that he picks up. And yes. makes you very grateful that he has someone like Dunk kind of being that source of some of that information because he's a pretty level-headed guy. (laughs) So how his reputations can can uh, be spun, huh? Yeah. 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 Uh, th- that brings up an interesting point for me. You guys talking about egg is um, I felt a real lack of presence of egg in this story as compared to the hedge knight. Did anybody else feel that? It just felt like he was just there to go, "Hey, boss, remember the boot." And that was about all that he did. Uh, or, hey, boss, that gal's a witch. You know, that was about the only thing right. that he that he did. He, I don't like girls. You know, it was more or less was basically what it was. It was he must be at that age where ooh, girls. You know, um, but he, he just didn't seem as involved in the story. Um, and he really wasn't all that involved in the story of the hedge knight as well. But it did seem more involving because Dunk engaged or was learning about him and engaging with him more maybe um, than just egg being kind of on the side and drawing a bath for the guy like he was in this particular story. Yeah. The relationship is kind of established and you're not like learning or having to see every scene of with them together. It's kind of assumed that they went about their normal business and you don't need to read about it on the page for the plot to advance, I guess is kind of the only thing I can think of is why he's not as present in this, um, in this book. His, his actions are not as consequential it's more maybe more you know this is a tale of dunk and egg i think there were some key moments in his development in this story the one that i had already mentioned about the fact that um that dunk was trying to take the time to teach him about the fact that the small folk have their own things that he could learn from them and that he shouldn't look down these people just because they weren't of noble birth 
And uh, another conversation that they have that was, I think, uh, related to when uh, it was after they had left uh, cold mode and were talking about uh, the things that were said there about the Targaryen princes and his father and so forth. And the idea that uh, Dunk uh, Egg was looking down on people that were bastards and what his opinion was on that from what he had heard and how Dunk brought up the fact that uh, he in all likelihood is a bastard. So it kind of opened Egg's eyes there too to where, you know, I shouldn't just think, you know, all bastards are deceitful and born of lust and all these things that he's heard from the Septons and so forth when, you know, this person that he obviously looks up to greatly could fit into that category. So, you know, I think, you know, some of that and, the, and then the whole issue of just, you know, his ideas about the magic. And I think, you know, those were things that he probably had to confront and get over a little bit too. So I thought his mm-hmm. are developing in, in um, some significant ways. But like, a- I think what you're saying, Matt, is that like his actions are more, observing and drawing um, like statements or drawing stories out of the other characters like Sir Eustace and Dunk and Lady Webber, whereas he's not actually as much of an action character. He's more of an observer. Yeah. Uh, that, that was, but, yeah. but I, Susan, I do really appreciate your point in the fact that um, obviously these are lessons that he takes with him as he becomes as he ascends to the throne. So I I think that that is an excellent point, and that's something that I had missed in looking at it from the reverse perspective. So thank you for that. Can Um, I ask? Sure. With regards to Egg, if you guys have an opinion, if he is more reminiscent of, and I like drawing parallels to the books, um, of Arya or of Aegon to you, the um, Rhaegar's son? Ooh. I think he's Aegon, the one that we meet in Young Griff. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's more, at least at this point, more reminiscent of Arya, just because, you know, he kind of has an answer for everything. (laughs) He he wants to insert his commentary. Arya is pretty similar. He has, like, the mouth, kind of a smart mouth. Um, I think, like I said before, they're both a little too smart for their own good. They both should maybe just shut up once in a while. Um, We don't really get to know... um, young Griff or fake Aegon that much, but I see more of his like Arya and the precociousness of both of them. What do you guys think? I'm going to split hairs and say, I think his story and his experiences remind me of Aegon's experiences and how that is very promising for Aegon because I'm sorry, they're both named Aegon. That's very unclear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Young Griff uh, it is very promising for young Griff because Aegon was a good king. So I think that there's um, some hope there for somebody to be raised with these experiences of being among small folk and experiencing life and all that stuff that Varys quoted to Kevin about his uh, how he will be a good king. And I think maybe even they drew on this experience that was kind of Egg's life up to now um, in order to to kind of mold this person, uh, young Griff, to be the kind of leader they think that Westeros needs. But on page, I think he's definitely has some Arya moments, and I, I, I adore that about him. Um, I think he's maybe listens a little bit better than Arya, though. So <laughs> Arya was a little bit more willful. I think Egg is a little bit more um, 
clever, where Arya's Castle. a little bit more blood. Well, just kind of the way he got Sir Eustace to tell Dunk to take him with him when he goes to see Lady Weber. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. he goes to bed, and then he wakes up in the morning, and Sir Eustace is basically quoting what Egg said to him the previous night. <laughs> and he's just too smart. It's, it's awesome. But, uh, I don't, Susan, did you say what you thought? Uh, no, I didn't. I was just trying to clarify that who you met, what I was saying. Yeah. Um, you know, um, actually, I'm not sure that I see that much of either one of them, but if I was going to have to choose between those two, then probably I would lean towards Arya, too, for the reasons that you all said. Could you give me some explanation for your distinction? Because sometimes once I start like seeing like bits of characters in each other, I kind of stop seeing them individually, and I kind of just see, oh, he's acting like Arya, or, you know? So distinguish them well, a little but, bit for me, if you can. Right, right. Well, with, with young Griff, I mean, we, as you said, we didn't get to know him that well, but, you know, we saw someone who was, uh, you know, we were told the things from Barris that they were wanting him to be, and, and hopefully those were things that he had learned quite a bit of, but what we saw was a lot of him being, uh, you know, taught lessons and so forth. And even though, you know, other than turning the chess, the, um, not chess, but the um, game board over with Tyrion, oh, uh, know, I thought he was, yeah. I thought he was pretty polite and respectful with, with all the, the people on the boat that he was interacting with. But he did get to seem a little bit more of the princely, arrogant attitude when he went to go visit the Golden Company and so forth. And I haven't really seen any of that in Egg yet. So it's the things that you all were commenting on in terms of Egg being um, very clever and, you know, some of the characteristics of Arya that we like, uh, you know, kind of a bold girl who is, uh, you know, in in the thick of things. Um, so yeah, that's, I would say probably a little bit more towards that, but I, not strongly. I don't really see him strongly. I just didn't really feel the any affinity with with young Griff. Oh, I'm glad you said that because like now that you're saying that, I am thinking like I can't picture young Griff or Arya like sitting down with Sir Eustace and like calmly asking them, asking him, you know, why did you betray my family? <laughs> Could you please explain this to me? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I thought it was so funny when Sir Eustace, you know, he got angry and was saying, you know, your father is an idiot or whatever. I know. <laughs> he doesn't wouldn't say that if he knew who the father was. <laughs> or he might, just not to his uh, face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Matt, uh, have, have, has anyone convinced you one way or the other? Are you backing uh, out slowly, closing I'm, the door? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm backing away and closing the door. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> quietly, uh, so that I can go cough because of my bronchitis. Um, I, and I'm going to quickly change the subject. I want to talk about Blood Raven because he is, a, uh, as Susan mentioned, yeah. he's introduced in this story. Um, this is a significant part of A Song of Ice and Fire, um, something that we now, as when we theorize and everything, we lace a lot of things tied to Blood Raven going through the story. And uh, I'm going to start off, as Kelly would expect, very crackpot here. Um, the Blood Raven tales of sorcery here and how he might be controlling Ares. Um, let's just start through that. We know where Blood Raven ends up. He ends up in the tree, which means he is very powerful. And we know that that means warging and green seeing ability for the most part. Um, and Bran has exhibited those same kinds of. Uh, similar powers we know 
that Bran has the ability to warg into Hodor. We know that uh, even someone like Vermeer, who is a skilled uh, warg, could warg into, at least for a little while, into a human being. Is it possible that these stories of Bloodraven controlling Ares actually true? Is he warging into Ares and making Ares do things that Ares would not do? And the silence falls. Oh, you got to direct us. <laughs> Name, pick, pick someone. Uh, I will pick that. I will, I will send that to Susan because she tears me up real good. Sew that sack up, baby. <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think that um, Aries, they describe him as being very bookish and not really com- too much concerned about the rules. So I think that, you know, he chose Blood Raven to be his hand. And I, from what I hear in the stories, I expect that he is a very strong hand who's probably doing a lot of the administration and running of the kingdom where Ares doesn't seem like he's too involved in it. My question is, as A brings up, you know, after uh, uh, Darren died and then the two princes, uh, Baylor Breakspear's son died, so that's why I guess the, the uh, kingship went on to Ares. Why did he decide to choose Blood Raven as his hand over Makar? Which you know brought up this uh, rift between between them. Um, I'm not sure you know what the judgment call was there, but obviously Blood Raven was important and instrumental in the whole Blackfire Rebellion. So there may have been things that Barry saw about you know his role there that made him choose one over the other. You know, they were both involved in it, but I don't I don't see him controlling Aries now. If it was uh, other son, the Ragal, who's talked about as somewhat mentally deficient, maybe that in that case, but I don't think so. Very good. Um, Kelly, you going to shoot me down too? <laughs> I think it's maybe less magical than you are suggesting. Darn. Um, sorry. <laughs> I, think, I think he's, as we kind of saw, he was really manipulative with Bran, and I think that that's just a skill, and he was using magic to be able to reach him, but otherwise he was really just being manipulative, and <clears throat> Maybe even uh, that's just a skill that he has, and I don't think somebody in power like that doesn't have that skill to be able to manipulate people around them. So it's possible that he was using magic to spy on um, Ares and kind of get maybe some information for how he could best manipulate him. Um, Mm. It's definitely possible that he was using sorcery in those kinds of ways that were less like warging into Ares or something like that but I think um, he's obviously powerful in Sorcerer and, and, and even just in being a I don't know can I, he, he has like this insight and this knowledge that does not seem to be normal and I, I would definitely say that he uses magic for that so I'm, I'm leaning your way Matt you've got me you've got me leaning Uh-oh. leaning in uh oh <laughs> Well, don't lean in too far uh, because the moat's right here and I've already got the sack around my neck. Uh, Stephanie, you're my last hope for a full jump into the moat. Well, I mean, I do think, as Kelly said, he uses magic and I think he definitely is a spy and is working into crows or whoever. But I, And he uses magic in that way and he's powerful, manipulative. But I don't think he's actually working into Ares. Um I don't think he has the same code of conduct that didn't we learn or someone told Bran 
or that we know that like warding into a human's really bad, or maybe nobody told Bran that, but that's supposed to be like such a like against nature thing to ward into a human. Um, and again, I don't think Blood Raven's the most moral or rule abiding guy, but I don't think he's warding into Ares. I think that would just be too suspicious. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> Darn. And I go down with the stones in the sack around me. Uh, very good. <laughs> hey, guys, uh, Stephanie, let me ask you this. Is there ever yes. going to be a George R. R. Martin story where the Brackens and the Blackwoods are not mentioned? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so confused. I mean, I, I no. <laughs> I'm, and I've heard so much about that story already. I feel like we know everything, but... Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no new. I'd like no, to see them do it. I'd like to see it where they actually went directly into. I mean, I, I guess they did a little bit with Jamie and the Riverlands, but I'd like to see more about their story directly. Maybe we'll get instead it of yeah, Dunkin' Egg. Yeah. yeah. Possibly so. Possibly so. Uh, what else have we got, guys? I, I'm going to go around. I mean, we're coming up on an hour and a half here, or shortly. So I, I kind of want to start to wrap this up, but. Okay, um, I don't have anything big, just a couple of little points. Uh, when uh, you brought up uh, warding into humans is, is uh, an abomination. That's something we learned from uh, very, very, uh, very thick skins. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, where, where did we hear that before, before we heard it? And um, also the point that the Buddhist, uh, version of the stories that has come out in the Night of the Seven Kingdoms, that the audio version is narrated by Harry Lloyd, who plays Ferris on the television show, and he does an excellent job. Really? They didn't get Roy? Nope. Nope. They have Harry Lloyd. I'll be darn. Wow. (laughs) Um, Just like they have, e- e- they have Ian Glenn for the uh, princess and the queen and uh, the oh, rogue prince. Oh, it's amazing. Oh, uh, so see, I don't do the audiobooks. Oh, nice. I, I can't do the audiobooks, guys. They, they just, I, I miss too much of the story or I, I hear words differently than with the way they're written out. You know, I just can't do audiobooks. <laughs> oh, I'm just super lazy oh. and I have the audiobook going while I read it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> It's like full immersion. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I have done that before. I admit I did that on the Storm of Swords read. I did do that. But um, yeah, I can't do it otherwise. Uh, Stephanie, let's go to you. What points do you have here? Um, so at the end of the story, um, I think Egg, he wants to go to Summer Hall to see his family. And Dunk, said, or, and Dunk says, no, like, let's go, let's go up north to the wall. Um, flip that, but yeah. So, huh? I think Dunk says, let's go to Summer Hall to see your family. And, and Egg goes... Oh, well, sorry. I got it mixed up in my bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're good, girl. <laughs> um, and then so he's like, no, let's go to the wall. Well, I want to know, do they go to the wall? Because we don't get that story. And is that where Dunk meets old Nan and she gets her stories about Dunk? I, I'm hoping that we'll find out in the She-Wolf of Winterfell if George ever first finishes Winds of Winter, please. <laughs> yes, I know. And obviously, like, they're going, if they want to go to the wall, but they have to pass through Winterfell. I mean, that's just a given. Um, but I'd, I'd like to see that story. And I thought that was a really nice way to end that story and also kind of give a nod to 
us about old Nan and all her stories. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, and even, even Brand's vision, um, the tree vision, right? Didn't he see, uh, a tall man, a tall man with a woman? Don't we all suspect Mm -hmm. that's Nan? Um, very good. Very good. What else you got, Stephanie? Anything else? No, that was it. I like that part. (laughs) All right, Kelly, rattle them off. I know you've got (laughs) 3000 bullet points on a spreadsheet that's eight miles long. So go for it. Good memory. Actually, it's true. But yeah, the the one question, and this is to everyone, is do you guys really think Dunk was knighted? I don't know if you are familiar with the the skepticism about it. Yeah, because I've I've heard about that. Because when we first meet him, right, he's burying him, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... And he's very evasive about answering whenever when anyone asks, and specifically in this book, um... Lady Weber asks a hedge knight named Sir Arlen of Penny. Oh, he starts with saying a hedge knight named Sir Arlen of Pennytree took me on to squire for him when I was just a boy. He taught me chivalry and the art of war. And Lady Weber says, and this na- this same Sir Arlen knighted you? Dunk shuffled his feet. One of his boots was half unlaced, he saw. No one else was like to do it. Not a direct answer. Very evasive. Looking down. Signs Ooh. of a liar. <laughs> I was yep. suspicious. Mm. Even though it's never, even though it's never clearly stated, I think it's pretty obvious that he was not knighted. Oh, we we are skeptical, Dunk. Oh, uh, of all his talk of honor. Well, don't you think one of the great payoffs of the Duncan Egg series would be to have Egg knight Sir Duncan? Yeah. Well, so, yes, <laughs> and and the idea that this man who who upholds the virtues of knighthood and chivalry and so forth um, is not a knight, is I think in keeping with what we see in the main stories with Brienne, with the Hound. I think that's uh, something that George likes to play with. Very good. Stephanie, um, you were going to say something. I missed you. I'm sorry. I just well, I was going to say he's always so much about honor and about, he's almost like Ned Stark in that way. He's very honor bound. So, like, if he wasn't knighted, which everybody seems to think he wasn't, like, that's a you know, he's very honorable about everything else, but then he's lying about being a knight. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm skeptical now, too, but I also think it would be a cool thing to see Egg knight him, like, officially, officially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, he becomes Lord Commander eventually. So I, yeah, right. I think at some point he's going to confess this to Egg. But in the first story, in the Hedge Knight, one of the things that he says is, after after the whole thing's come out about Egg, after he's in the cell or whatever, uh, and he's talking to Egg, and he's thinking, he's reflecting to himself that he knows how it feels to want to be so close to something that you're willing to tell a big lie about it. Mm. Right. And, and that's not my, that's not a word-for-word quote, but it's very close to that. You know, and, and that along with all the other instances where he never gets direct answers to this stuff. I mean, he does, he does, I think it's in, with Baylor Breakspear, did it with Baylor Breakspear, or with the uh, Castellan at the castle when he first goes up, he does say that Sir Arlen knighted him. So he does outright lie at that mm-hmm. point. But at uh, any other time, his wording is very evasive. <laughs> and there are other hints right. throughout. So, I, I mean, I yeah. think it's a given. Oh, I'm glad. Okay, cool. Matt, were you suspicious? <laughs> uh, I, you know what? I 
didn't know whether to interpret that as <laughs> trying to hide the truth or if just humility. I, I do, really didn't. Because I, I have such a high opinion of Dunk that I wanted to think it was just humility. But maybe not. Yeah. It would be a little bit tragic, which is kind of thematic. <laughs> <laughs> Very thematic. No. Tragic? George? Never. He's all sunshine and rainbows and unicorns on Skaggles. Oh, Matt, I think you need to reread. <laughs> yeah. I, I must have missed something in the text. There's not much textual evidence of happiness anywhere in George R. R. Martin's books. Uh, anything else, Kelly? Um. Can we go do one more round robin, or is everybody all done? No, go ahead. <laughs> it's all you, girl. Well, I, I have, like, notes galore, but I think most of it's just for my own entertainment about the names that were all mentioned at the bloodgrass field and all mm. the ifs that um, Sir Eustace kind of listed off of all these things that happened. It's kind of one fun thing is mentioned is if Quick Fingers hadn't been caught stealing the dragon eggs. It was very fascinating. <laughs> um which what happened to those dragon eggs and it seems like there could be more there but there really is nothing more about this person named quick fingers so well, well wait a minute stop right there stop right there how did it say i can't recall now did it say how it right many here. dragon eggs no it just says if quick finger had not been caught with the stolen dragon's eggs mm, okay i know Ooh. but it's plural <laughs> ah yeah it's true. I just just wondering, you know, how old were those eggs that uh, Daenerys ended up with? And are thinking of of Illyrio ancient. and his ties. Oh, they were ancient. Okay. Yeah, times had turned them to stone, but they were still beautiful. Okay. I know. Well, Could be though. I mean, this is what a hundred years before where we are now. So about. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if eggs would petrify in that amount of time. I don't think they would. But uh, then again, you know, you don't have uh, not in our world, but. When you have a winter that lasts, you know, hundreds of years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it might be important that they would petrify really fast. <laughs> um, oh, I had a question at the end. So two questions because I just didn't know what to make of some of these things. So the first one is after the um, the duel in the water, did and the end of that kind of section, um, Dunk says something. A fish flashed past his face, long and white and slender. What was that? He wondered. What was that? What's that? Interpretation? It's so, so bizarre, yeah. Did anyone have an interpretation of it? Mm-mm. A fish? And he's just kind of going crazy? <laughs> White <laughs> and slender. It, it it doesn't seem to match anything that that we well, know. Oh. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was going to say maybe it's like a sword, but I don't think he would mistake that for a fish, even if he was knocked out. I'm not sure. <laughs> Hmm. Oh, I found that quote from the hedge tie, if you want to tell you what it says. Go ahead. Exactly. So, okay, so this is when uh, Dunk is, is in the cell, uh, and Egg comes to explain to him what he, you know, why he lied to him and all that. And uh, after he explains how, he, you know, he, he wanted to be a, you know, somebody's squire, and, you know, because he couldn't be Darren since Darren was in the end drunk and so forth. Um uh, and uh, Dunk looked at him thoughtfully. He knew what it was like to want something so badly that you would tell a monstrous lie just to get near it. Hmm. And, yeah, so. that does cast some doubt for sure. Certain. Like uh, trivia time. 
Wait, real quick, because Iron did suggest that it was uh, it was egg jumping into the water or the drowned god sending a fish to uh, to dunk in there. My thought is that it's just intestines. Mm. I thought that he just gouged uh, long inch enough in the uh, stomach that he was spilling his guts out, as mentioned previously, and that's just George's way of calling it <laughs> intestines. Uh, ah. <laughs> oh, okay. Very good. Quick trivia. <laughs> yeah. Kelly, three castles on a shield. Oh. Three castles on a shield. Ah. And that's from the mystery night, right? I think so. Oh my god, I was on mute. I, I was so. totally saying it. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you were? Sure, Kelly. <laughs> I, I Googled it. I have it I, on my, um, I did a search on my Google Doc because, like I said, it's eight pages, but I did write it down. And yeah, I have a lord with three castles on his shield, Lord Gorman Peak. Cut down Roger, Arlen's nephew slash squire. I I was talking. I'm just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find a way to edit that to where it sounds a little more, a little better. Uh, Susan. Yes. Egg likes his bath scalding hot and doesn't seem yes. affected by the heat. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, more Targaryen heat resistance. Yeah, I mean, for, yeah, certainly, for at least heat uh, enjoyment, (laughs) where they, you know, they like it hot. Tolerance, yes, enjoy the heat. Is that why you think the tale of Summerhall is so tragic? Because he thought something might happen that he he couldn't do, that television show Danny can? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to venture... a strong guess there yet. I'm going to wait and see. I really don't know what happens. All right. Um, let's see. Stephanie. Um, yeah. Is the moral of this story and all of George R. R. Martin's books, in fact, <laughs> what Bennis says, shouldn't go turning over rocks, Lunk. Never know what might crawl out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly what George is wanting us to say. Just don't, don't be going messing around with stuff. Just don't. Might not turn out very well, or it might. Who knows? Who knew that there were so many Lancels in the Lannister line? A fourth or fifth king, Lancel from the Lannister from the Rock, <laughs> well, yielding was- a Valerian steel sword, which would have been named what, Stephanie? What? <laughs> I know. I, have. I I know that you know, Susan. That's why I'm asking Stephanie. <laughs> what was the Lannister ancestral Valerian steel sword? I thought they never had one. I don't know. <laughs> they did have one. They lost it when uh, I think it was Tommen the Second went to uh, the, the Essos or something like that. Nice, good pull. Uh, True. The name was Bright Roar. Ooh. And in fact. Wasn't there a crazy uncle who went looking for Bright Roar also? Wasn't it Tywin's brother? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Garion's their uncle. Garion? 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 Yes. Mm -hmm. Very good. (laughs) Garion. All right. So all kinds of little things layered into all of this, right? That's so funny. That was my actual other question was, what was he talking about? Don't go looking under rocks. Why did he say that? I don't understand. 
<laughs> How do you like get a lip split open by looking under a rug? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you're getting that advice from uh, what's his name? Uh, Venice. Venice. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. The I'm jerk that went and stole everything. Man, talk about. Right, right. So, you know, I don't know if you want really unless so. I think it's like he's, he's, uh, he's the one to, you know, let, let, uh, you know, let things lie as they are. Don't, uh, you know, don't, don't disturb things because then you have to, then you have to get involved and, and deal with the uh, outcome of it. And he doesn't want to get involved in anything. All right. Very good. Uh, guys, we got to wrap this up, but I do want to thank you all uh, for not drowning me in a sack, uh, even though I'm sure you were tempted too many times. Uh, I'm going to go around one more time. Please tell people how they can contact you if you want uh, to be contacted about A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> and uh, if you have one final point about the story overall or a specific point, feel free to make it then. Let's start with you, Stephanie. Okay, well, thank you again for having us, Matt. This is always fun. Um, I'm very much looking forward to the mystery night. I think that's the best of the Dunkin' Egg tales. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm Stephanie Persephone, and that's S-M-P-E-R-S-E-P-H-O-N-E. All righty. Susan, let's go to you. I really enjoyed this. And as always, thank you for inviting me to come on and share this stuff. I had a great time with everybody. And I... um, want to say about about the story is I every time that I go through it I appreciate it more because I see that there are all those little details and so much interconnectedness to the other stories here that uh, you learn something new every time so thanks again and I am at uh, Susan Stacy at Black Eyed Lily on Twitter that's the really the only way to reach me but uh, I love always discussing things with people about uh, Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. Thank you, Susan, and thanks for joining us once again. And finally, uh, Kelly, thanks for stopped, having the time to stop in and, and talk to us about this story. How can people talk to you and you have any final points? Or three dozen? I know, I'm like looking at my list, shaking my head. I wrote so much down. <laughs> but I know it's all for me and I value it in my heart. My, uh, my Twitter is Kelly Underfoot. So you can message me there and I check it pretty regularly when I'm not in school, which I have one more semester with. I'm super jazzed. And then let's see, I just, I really just want everyone to take a minute and value the, uh, my favorite line that was repeated over and over at least in this book was she will not have my checky water. It's and constant checky, li- checky lions and all of it everywhere is so adorable. If you listen to it on audiobooks, you'll understand. It just sounds ridiculous. And if you ever see anything that's like checkered from now on, you say checky. That's I, I highly recommend it. It makes life good. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And folks, uh, for uh, if you're a new book reader and you've just joined us, then get ready to read the mystery night. Uh, from the Duncan Egg series. We'll be covering that in two weeks. But in the meantime, we will return to our second part of the Bran Stark examination next week. And thanks for joining us. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Fit and Trim. That's F I T T N T R I M. And here's Axel Foley from the Small Council podcast to tell you how to actually contact me. Bye bye. 
You've been listening to Podcast Winterfell. Find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840.